Hello, everyone, and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host, Stuart Blues, and this week I have a very special guest on the show. He's a former soldier and police officer who was one of the UK's chosen few level one undercover operatives. Over his 17-year career, he has led covert operations, tackled high-profile murder cases, and had a central role in some of the most daring undercover police operations of modern times. His new book, Deep Cover, How I Took Down Britain's Most Dangerous Gangsters, is out today. Please welcome to the show, Shay Doyle. Welcome, Shay. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for having me, mate. I really appreciate you coming on. So what we'll do is we'll talk about the book a little bit later. I'd just like to give my audience a bit of an idea of... We're not going to give too many spoilers away because we want them to go and buy the book, of course, but just a bit about yourself, a bit about your time in the army, in the police. I appreciate because, and my audience will as well, because you've done all this undercover work, very covert, you can't really say too much about how you sort of grew up and what your background life was. What can you tell us with regards to where you're actually from? Yeah, no, uh, so I grew, I grew up uh, in, in Manchester, um, from council state in Manchester, you know, I certainly didn't grow up with a silver spoon, uh, and uh, yeah, sort of a, a, a you know grew up during the eighties, social unrest and unemployment, and and all the rest of it that we were, we were dealing with at that time. Uh, but at the age of sixteen, you know, my family like I come from a second generation Irish family, so uh, my mum was one of nine. Bro- my mum had one of nine, and I had seven brothers, um, all of whom had had a, a taste in strange ways prison at one point or another. Mm. Uh, and we're basically a set of rogues, really. Uh, so it was never really sort of in the script that I was going to join the police, but uh, at the 16 years of age, I decided to sort of get myself off the estate and didn't really know what to do myself. I was a little bit lost, um, left school, not, not not a GCC to my name, and thought, you know what, I'll join the army. So uh, at 16 years of age, I joined, I joined an infantry unit in the army and uh, got to see, uh, make some great friends and travel, you know, different places in the world and, and did some operational tours of duty. So yeah, I had a, I had a, I had a great time. When did you actually leave school then? Did you leave at, at 16 or did you leave prior to that and just start working? Well, because of the way my birthday is, I was actually 15. Um, okay. I, um, so I was 15 years of age and um, we started uh, working on a building site and decided this wasn't for me really. So so walked past the Army Careers Office one day in Manchester City Centre on Fountain Street where it used to be. Saw, the, saw pictures of the blokes holding weapons and, uh, you know, in, in, in exotic places and thought, you know what, let's give that a try. They do make it seem appealing, don't they? With the, with the they pictures. do. It, 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 it seemed quite so appealing six months later when I was sat in a muddy hole and it was pissing down. But, uh, <laughs> is that the actual age you can go into the army? Is it still sixteen or is it eighteen now? Years of age, yeah, sixteen years of age. So young yeah, that, I, joined, joined, I joined very, very young. Yeah, I was. My mum couldn't wait to get me out the door. <laughs> Not a case of don't go to the army, son. I want to kick you out. Uh, get out the door and uh, go and do something useful was pretty much it. <laughs> What's it like when you, so you, do you just put, walk past the recruitment office and say, I want to join and they say, yeah, come on in, son? Yeah, I mean, pretty much. I mean, uh, they, they are quite welcoming at first, funnily enough. And um, <laughs> they sit you down and you talk through, you sort of do your barb test, which is sort of works out where you, where you sort of uh, level is where you can be. And uh, mine sort of said, uh, yeah, uh, infantry which is yeah. a combat sort of unit. So um, so that's where I went. And pretty much a few weeks later, passed all the fitness tests and medicals and uh, started six months infantry training up at uh, initially, well, at Catrick. 
What what is the physical exam or test actually like? Is it similar to what we see in films where you have to run through all the gauntlets and go through muddy patches and all this stuff? I've no idea what it's like. Well, the initial the initial the initial test is just a sort of one point five mile one point five mile run uh, BFT basic fitness test, which is so it's one point five miles a squad. And then 1.5 mile best effort, you've got to get under 11 minutes. Um, I think at that time in my life, I was running at about 7.30. Mm. So um, I, was, I was a bit of a racing snake when I was younger. Have you got stuff on your back as well, like weighted backpacks? No, well, not at that stage. That's just the no. initial entrance test to get into the army. Okay. And then obviously, once you get into the military and certainly in the infantry training, they gradually build up your fitness uh, and build up the weight that you carry in the, the distance. Uh, and it's all a very much gradual steps. Yeah. How do they actually train you to, obviously infantry is mainly with the guns and stuff, I assume. How do they actually convert you from being a public citizen to being in control of a deadly weapon? Well, I mean, obviously you have your um, you know, your, your weapons handling training and you start off very basic, um, you know, what is a weapon? You know, it's as simple as that. And then you work it right up to getting out on the range, handling it safely. And then that's, you know, down firing it down a straight range then they'll increase the distance and then they'll introduce it you know, while you're marching or you're on a, on a, on a, a, a tab or a, ma- a march somewhere. And then eventually they'll move you up to, you know, blank firing uh, uh, exercises where you move as a, as a section or in pairs, attacking, attacking positions and stuff like that. Uh, and then eventually they'll introduce live rounds. Uh, so you'll eventually start moving as a, as a section as a, and as a platoon, firing live rounds. And, you know, it's, it's great fun. Do you live within the barracks? Because I know there's a few where I'm based that you can walk past and it sort of seems like this desolate place where no one actually is. They might have the odd guard dog walking through the grounds every now and again, but is it, is it like you actually live on, on location there? Yeah, when you do your training, for sure, you you, you know you are pretty much there. You know, you're there 24-7 unless you're allowed home on leave. Um, so yeah, for six months during infantry training, you know, your first 10 weeks is basic training, which everybody goes through. And then the rest of it is a specialised sort of infantry training where you go through your section battle drills, your platoon battle drills and your weapon handling and basically, you know, how to sort of camouflage and conceal yourself and hide from the enemy and, you know, flanking manoeuvres and going through different weapon systems, yeah. Where have you been deployed? Uh, so I've deployed in Northern Ireland, deployed in uh, Africa, deployed in Kuwait, deployed in um, various places around, around the world, yeah. Do you do stints of like six months or is it sort of you go here until the job's done? How does that kind of work? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, it depends really. Um, Northern Ireland was different different sort of um, different lengths really. I was there for short stints and I'd be there for longer stints and then I was involved in uh, the Orange Marches on Port, um, in Port Down and stuff like that, the big uh, public order sort of uh, turnouts uh, dealing with uh, the Orange Lodge marches, marches season down Garvaki Road and stuff like that. So at a young age, I was exposed to that. And my first operational posting was actually in South Armagh, which is known as, was known as Bandit Country in Northern Ireland. And um, that's, uh, you know, it's really sort of, um, at the time, as a young 18-year-old soldier, zigzagging out of the barracks, thinking you're going to get your head taken off by a sniper, then um, it's a bit of a bottle tester, but you soon, you soon grow into it. Yeah, it's obviously quite a historically dangerous place, Northern Ireland. I went to a place, what's the hotel called? You might know it. I think it's the most bombed hotel in the world. Is it called the Queen's or something? No, it's the Europa. Europa, Europa. that's the one. I went to a bar opposite the Europa. That's my uh, the closest I've been to combat, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I've actually stayed in the Europa, yeah. I actually stayed in the Europa when I was working undercover one time, actually. But it's yeah. another story. 
yeah. Now, what's the banter like in the army? Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, I still miss it to this day. I mean, some of the best friends I ever made are, are army lads. You know, you can't, you can't break, you know, you can't match that bond that you've had with somebody when you've been in there. Uh, you know, you've been in been in that world with them. So, yeah, it's great, you know. It uh, can be get very dark at times, as I'm sure you can imagine, but, yeah. you know, sometimes they have to go and do some dark stuff. Well, yeah, I think it probably makes sense to not make light of situations like that, but the dark humour and stuff, that kind of makes sense. If Just to relieve the tension. I bet the tension's absolutely to put a yeah, knife, through, just, knife through it. it. It's just a coping mechanism. It's just a coping mechanism. Yeah. How long were you in the Army for? Uh, about nearly eight years. Nearly eight years. So then the next sort of stepping stone, you mentioned at the start, you know, based on your background, you never thought you'd ever see being a copper, joining the police. What did the transition look like from the army to the police? Yeah, I mean, um, the police was certainly not on my list of jobs that I was probably going to do, you know. Uh, like when I grew up on, when I grew up in Manchester, it wasn't really the dumb thing, you're joining the police. Um, and certainly sort of my group of friends and people that I hung around with, you know, were, were quite sort of, taken aback when I said I'm going to have a go at the police and really the only reason I joined the police was um, well what I had a bit of a massive life change I, I, I thought I'd have a break from the army and then go back in and, and then my dad committed suicide and so I thought well I need to sort of be around for my mum and the family and whatnot sort of make sure everyone's okay and almost be a breadwinner if you like and I was work I got, I got myself a job working on a building site again Hodcaddy and um, one of my friends who had served in the military with he'd actually joined Greater Manchester Police and um he rang me up after you know he'd heard about my dad committing suicide and I said, look, why, why don't you ever go to the police? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And I was like, not a chance. I'll never be able to show my face around here again. <laughs> you know, it was like, this was never going to happen. And as the sort of weeks passed after my dad's death and my friend was on to me, I thought, do you know what? Why not? Why can't I join the police? Why shouldn't somebody like me who, you know, comes from an estate in Manchester, why should it be for other people? Why shouldn't I join the police? Why shouldn't I give it a go? Yeah. You know, I had that a military background, you know, I had honesty and integrity. I wasn't somebody that was involved in crime or interested in crime. You know, I knew people who were for sure, but it just wasn't attractive to me. And so I thought, do you know what, after after a while, even though I knew it would alienate certain people against me, I thought, do you know what, I'm going to give it a go. Why not? Do you feel like your army training and your army background helped with that transition? Uh, to a degree, and sometimes it was a hindrance in a way because um, I, I'd come from a you know a combat unit where we were trained to be very very aggressive, and um, you know we we were the people that took the fight to the enemy if you like, and uh, I, I took that attitude into the police uh, in, in sort of the first instance if you like. I thought that's what I've been trained to do and programmed to do, you know. So there was no backing down in me, kind of when I went out on the streets as a cop, you know. Um, and sometimes as a cop, you've got to be a lot more diplomatic than you have as an infantry soldier. Right. Yeah, because when I was reading the sort of earlier chapters of your book, you mentioned that it was how you were kind of raised not to back down from a fight if you challenge, stand up for yourself. And I suppose that's kind of what you're saying. That's ideal for the army. But with yeah. the police, which is probably a lot more political, I imagine, it's probably something that the higher ups would maybe turn their noses up at a little bit or think are oh, a bit of a headache rather than falling in line. It is until it's useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, police get a lot of bad press, and I don't, and I don't want to get misunderstood here. You know, I I came from a council state in Manchester, and I I, I knew people who've been subjected to police brutality and stuff like that. And you know, certainly some of my own family are you know horrified to join the police. 
I, I, police brutality was never my thing. You know, I could always engage and talk to people. But equally, you know, there are people in society who are violent, vile, abusive people. And as a cop, you will come across them people. And, you know, as I say in the book and, you know, my military training, the way I'd been fetched up, and just growing up on an estate in Manchester, you've got to be able to look after yourself. You know, or you're going to get bullied. You're going to get, you're going to get, you know, you've got to be able to sort of be robust. And, you know, I was capable of being robust. And, you know, I'd, I'd grown up, um, I'd been around boxing as a teenager uh, and in the army. So I knew how to look after myself. And, and I wasn't one, I wasn't going to be, uh, I wasn't going to be on the wrong end of a good idea, you know, um, it, as a cop. It just wasn't in my mentality. Because you do like tie boxing and stuff, right? You do loads of. Yeah, no, over the years, I, I, I boxed competitively and I also tie boxed competitively, yeah. Yeah, it's, I can imagine that it must help mentally when you know that you look after yourself. You're well built just from an aesthetic point of view, but you know you can actually train and look after yourself. Because it feels quite ironic that probably some of the people that would get bullied if they didn't retaliate could potentially go into a role with power such as the police and then use their frustration by committing acts of brutality on more innocent people is that have you seen anything not corruption is a very very strong word but people who doing things not by the book but they would get away with it i'm not going to say that hasn't gone on in the police of course it has and corruption obviously does does occur in the police i think what what i would say about my my experience in the police is you know most you know people may have their own view and disagree about this but most of the cops i work with at an operational level were pretty decent people who did what they signed up to do, which was look after vulnerable people and put bad people in prison who needed to be in prison, you know, and they would go about that in an honest way. Of course, there is bad apples. What I saw in the police was more senior management and middle management abusing their positions at times, not necessarily corruption, but, you know, abusing their position with other people or cops or you know, uh, making decisions that weren't particularly ethical and stuff like that. I certainly saw incidences of that and was on the receiving end of stuff like that myself, as I talk about in the book. Yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of politics when you get sort of higher up the ranks there. There's a lot of politics involved. Certainly I found when when I got into units that were dealing with much more serious organised crime, there's a lot of politics and there's a lot of egos at play within the police for sure. So I think that before you sort of, started doing the undercover stuff. You're in the, the police for, I think it was three years, you said? Yeah, about three years, yeah. Yeah. What sort of the most memorable case or operation you were on as far as that first initial period with the police? Well, I only ever did, two, I did just shot two years in uniform. Even just before my probation, I was plucked out of uniform and placed into an organised crime unit because I was actually going to leave and rejoin the army. Uh, I wasn't particularly enjoying it. Even though I was, you know, I was okay, and um, I think in uniform, one 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 incident that sticks out is um, there was a uh, a guy called Craig King who was uh, pretty much a man mountain. He was thirty stone, six foot eight, doorman from Salford, and um, he'd uh, found got wind that his sister was involved in a, an incident with her partner, and decided that he was going to turn up at the house and uh, start. Uh, trying to get in and sort sort people out. And uh, he turned up with a uh, sawn-off rifle and started pinging rounds off up and down the street. And two of my colleagues were actually in the house and I was sat behind a wall trying to give a commentary on uh, until the firearms cops arrived. And then um, the firearms cops arrived and challenged him in the street and he 
been firing rounds up and down the street, you know, clearly a risk to the public. Mm. Um, they challenged him, he refused to put his gun down and they killed him in the street there. To, you know, took his life in the street there, which, you know, looking back, unfortunate, but was it justified? Yeah, unfortunately it was. It's so incomprehensible to hear that all this stuff, especially in the UK, with regards to guns, it's just not something the general public sees. So when you hear of all these stories of people in the more underground areas in towns and cities and guns are flying around like no man's business, it's quite hard to actually imagine that that's going on. It doesn't feel real from a general person's point of view. Yeah, I think that's one of my drivers of writing the book, really, to, to sort of try and highlight, you know, I think people go about the business, they go to work, they get, you know, this sort of kids out and they don't, they don't, they think, I think they think the police are just giving out parking tickets daily and that's just not the case at all. You know, uh, there is cops out there who are dealing with some of the worst things in society daily, in day in, day out. You know, guns are prevalent. There's a real danger and real risk to both the public and, and cops, you know, fr from the use of firearms. And, um, you know, I unfortunately was involved in probably more than most through my career um, and firearms were really prevalent in my career. And I wanted to sort of, get that across in the book that there's a real, there is real danger on the streets, you know, luckily it's contained and, and the police do a good job of keeping it to it to a, an acceptable level. So the public are pretty safe in this country, but you know, it's there, it is there and it's going on under your noses sometimes without you even knowing. It is. It's almost as if, if you don't see it, it's not there, which obviously isn't the case. And maybe we're just a little bit naive and we think, oh, they, they have guns in America, not here, but Jesus reading some of our stories. They're just absolutely everywhere. When did it come to the point within that first few years then where you made the change to start doing things a little bit more covert? Was it something you decided or were you approached to do that? No. So uh, initially I, I was I did a couple of years in uniform, which is the minimum you can do uh, in, your, in your probationary period. Uh, like I say, I was sort of getting a bit disillusioned with it. I, I, quite a lot of friends of mine had pulled away from me really um, because I joined the police and where I came from and stuff. And uh, you know, I, I was because I was always getting used to get involved in the more robust sort of stuff. I was getting complained about and stuff like that, and I thought it's just a bit of an headache, really. I don't need, and you know, family life had settled down after my dad's suicide, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back in the army. Literally, I was going to have my notice in, and and, uh, and uh, an old uh, an old school DCI sort of summons me to his office, and uh, okay, well, bloody hell, what have I done now? Kind of thing, you know, I'm in the shit again, and um, so went up to his office, and he said, look. I hear good things about you. I hear you're a decent cop. I hear you like to get stuck in. You know, I hear you've got a good, good, good head on you. You know, have you thought there is a, there is more to the police than this uniform policing? Have you thought about you know other things? So uh, he offered me a position on his organised crime unit, which I'd seen. You know, I used to see them around the neck. These lads in jeans and t-shirts, and uh, you know, you never really knew what they're up to. And then they come in with a load of prisoners and a kilo of coke and a gun or something like that. And, you know, they'd be getting covert information off informants and stuff like that and acting on it and, you know, doing surveillance at night and stuff like that. And I thought, you'd hear about it, but you wouldn't particularly be involved in it as a uniformed cop. But it really appealed to me. And then when he offered me a, a chance to have a go at it, I thought, yeah, why not? You know, I'll go and have a go at it. And that's what I did when I had a go at it. I imagine that's quite a stringent entry process because it can't be there's a couple of levels based on what i've gathered from reading so there's level one undercover level two undercover level one's the the more serious of the two is that right that actually isn't undercover at that point that's just working on an organized crime unit 
so I, I moved from there, from uniform into the organised crime unit. And then we started doing sort of what we call proactive operations on sort of serious criminals. And I detailed one in the book that really got me sort of, you know, really got me interested in, in seeing, a, seeing a different side of the police where there was an escaped prisoner who was doing armed robberies who previously pointed a shotgun at police. And we set up a massive surveillance operation and found him and, and got a uh, an armed team, armed strike on him. Uh, so it really set alive my buzz for the police, if you like. So I was in that unit for about six six months when an older an older guy in there approached me and he said, "Look, the way I came across at the time in my twenties, you know, I was an ex squadder, Manchester lad, you know, I was quite a big big lad in that." He says, "Look, a few years ago I went to be a level one undercover undercover cop, uh, but I failed the selection. Um, but I think you I think you'd be really good at it. You don't you don't look like a cop. You don't act like a cop. You don't talk like a cop." Uh, I think I think they really like you down there, and you're bright. You know, you're pretty bright with it. So um, I wasn't particularly interested because I was really enjoying what I was doing. And then they had an open day, so I went down to this open day, and there was like hundreds of people there. And then they they detailed this selection process to become a level one UC, which was long, laborious psychological testing, psychometric testing, intelligence testing, practical testing. Then that's just to get to the course, you know. So. Um, I decided that I'd have a bash at it with not much hope, really, not thinking I'd actually, um, you know, see anything through. How long did it last, all the preliminary tests? So probably took around nine months. Um, wow. Like I said, I took all these tests and, and turned out I was, you know, quite intelligent, considering I left school with not a GCSE to my name, apparently. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I gradually just whittled my way through all these tests and slowly saw the numbers dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. And I think at one, I think at the start of it, nationally there was 400 people going for the course just to get to the end course. Uh, and by the time I got to that, I, I was one of the successful people to get to the course and there was eight of us from 400. Wow. And then on the actual course itself, which is two weeks of sleep deprivation, being put under real stressful situations and scenarios uh, not sure, you know, your paranoid paranoid states are ramped up and really sort of strip down who somebody is and find out who they are when they're in that sort of situation and sleep deprivation is kicking in with them. I spent two weeks of that in the final course and uh, at the end of it, only three of us passed from what, probably about 400 nationally. The final course when you were going through that, it kind of reminded me, obviously it's a far more tougher version. You know that film, The Kingsman? Yes. It kind of reminded me of that when he's going through the selection process. But there was one where you said, obviously I won't give too much away, but there was another guy who had a really secret trick. I'll say it up, yeah. his, up his sleeve. Um, <laughs> but I, might, I might leave you guys to find out that one. It's a really funny story. But yeah, they, how you, they basically drop you off somewhere and you have to find your way back, right? Yeah, pretty much. They uh, they, they basically get, get, you, get you operating on very, very little sleep and... Uh, I don't know if you've done that before, but uh, people, you, you know, people start to sort of the true character really comes out when someone's not had much sleep for days on end, and uh, they pick you up in the middle of the night and drop you in the middle of nowhere, and you've got to try and do these tasks and find your way back. And uh, yeah, some some people had prior knowledge and took took uh, took, took uh, steps to try and get circumvent the, the test, if you like. But uh, I'll, I'll leave that to people to read in the book. Yeah, it's definitely a, a very entertaining part of the book, I thought. I can't speak much on that kind of sleep deprivation, but I do have a toddler, so um, I can kind of get where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very, very, very similar. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you know, you say with the with the nine months and people started dropping out and dropping out, was that because they were failing it or were they just thinking, I can't be arsed with this and just sucking it off? Probably a bit of both. Probably some thinking, can't be arsed with this, sucking it off. And then, um, which again is part of the test. Who wants someone who isn't going to stick to the end course, you know? If mm-hmm. you're going to work undercover, you need someone who's dedicated, focused. But yeah, certainly along the way, people will have been put through testing scenarios and little role plays and things like that. And they'll just been found wanting. Doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad cop. You know, doesn't mean they're a bad police officer or a bad detective, um, but you start to really find out who. It's about who can portray themselves as a as a believable criminal uh, for long periods of time, be under the the most serious amounts of stress, and you know the level you're playing at as a level one undercover cop is, you know, you may get seriously hurt or killed. You know, it isn't a normal nine to five job where you'll get a slap on the wrist off the boss if you get it wrong. You know, it's a very very serious game. And that's why it's a very, very robust testing and selection procedure. It certainly makes sense. You said that three of you passed, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll all get placed on UC operations. No, um, just because you've passed doesn't actually mean you're sort of all singing, all dancing, ready to go out on the street and uh, start being Donny Brasco, you know, infiltrating uh, infiltrating uh, the, 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 the biggest organised crime group in the country. Not at all. Uh, and, you know, it's really tainting with, are you, are you even going to get called on, you know? Um, and the level one undercover unit at the time in, in Great Master Police was called Amiga. So I, I finished the finished selection, passed the selection, and went back to my unit. That was, I, I was started on, and that finished on the Friday, went back to my unit on the Monday. Monday afternoon, I got the call. You've been uh, transferred to Amiga. Get, pack your stuff up, off you go. <laughs> so I was there, I was, I was back in my old unit in the morning. <laughs> yeah. It, does it feel, I imagine... It must be quite lonely at times undercover. Do you ever feel that people just in the general police or frontline police, should we call it, sort of forget you exist? Do you have one point of contact who you can access 24-7? Yeah, so when you're working undercover, you know, nobody in the in the overt police service knows knows you're operating. You know, it's got to be a closely guarded secret. secret. Um, so, you know, unless it's need to know basis, you know, if you're undercover, then it's very much a need to know basis. All your old colleagues, you've just disappeared effectively. You've disappeared. Uh, they don't know who you are. We don't know where you've gone, what you're doing, and you can't share that for obvious reasons. Um, so yeah, it, you know, it sounds glamorous, doesn't it, undercover, and we see the films and, you know, we read the books and it, and, it, and people try and make it sound glamorous, but without doubt it is anxiety inducing at times and it can be lonely, it can be tiring, it can massively impact on your home life. Uh, it can impact on your own mental health. And, you know, it certainly isn't like the films portray. Yeah. I remember a long, long time, well, probably five, six years ago now, um, I was on my way to Manchester for a bit of a rave and would put the postcode in my sat-nav for the hotel and would put the, well, I had put the the numbers in wrong. So I think instead of M21, I'd put M12 or vice versa ended up in the place that you were put down for a long time, Moss side. Yeah. Um, forgive me. I'm not sure what the postcode is. I, I thought it was M21 or M12, but, <laughs> and it said there was a KFC around there. Clearly we were putting the wrong postcode. It felt like I was on the set of shameless and yeah. I've never been more scared in my life. The fact that you were placed <laughs> there and we're sort of walking around brazen with your, you know, your designer stuff on and acting all Jack the lad and own the place whilst undercover I mean, take my hat off to you for that. I must. Do you ever get? Obviously, you're a strong character, but do you ever think, "What the fuck am I doing here?" Do you ever like just think, "I could die today"? 
I certainly now I'm an older guy. Yeah, I look back and think, what the fuck was I playing at, at the time? But uh, at the time, Stuart, you know, I'd, I'd gone through this selection procedure and it became all, all encompassing to me. All I wanted to do was be the best at this. Once I decided I was, I was on that path to be an undercover cop, I didn't just want to be another one. I wanted to be the best at it. And mm. to me, the bigger the challenge, the more dangerous the challenge, that's what I had to do to be to achieve what I wanted to achieve. So I look back now and think, my God, I must have been crazy. But at the time, it made perfect sense to me. I mean, honestly, guys, you have to read this book. It's absolutely... It, it ter- terrified me to the point, Shay, the other night where I was actually waking up thinking that someone was after me. <laughs> because I was reading reading some of the sort of later chapters of your book and I was I was waking up thinking, you know, sometimes you get warm, you might take the covers off you and sleep just like with nothing much on you. Like I was I was waking up, making sure my door was shut, putting my covers back on me. I was shitting myself. And that, that's, just, that's just reading the book before bed, you know what I mean? So I can't imagine living and breathing that day in, day out. Is it customary then that you basically, you have to live within that area or is that only in cer- certain situations? Yeah, so no, I, I you know, I, like we, we touched on it before, you know, I was a level one UC, so that's the highest level. That's like, doesn't get any higher, you know, you deal with the, the highest risk stuff, long-term operations, cold infiltrations, we call it, into communities that are suffering from gun violence or could be a counter-terrorist operation. Uh, and, you know, we have to ad- basically adopt our criminal persona 24-7. We become that individual. We live that person's life. We live up. We live where we're operating, and um, we essentially have to be that person twenty four seven. So my persona undercover, particularly for the Moss Side operation, was Mikey. Uh, Mikey was an arm robber, professional arm robber, um, which made me interesting to the gang lads, but not not a competitor. And you know, I was basically somebody who could make things happen. I could do things. I knew people who could do things. I could middle middle deals. I could. You know, I, w- I was an interesting character for them to have around, which is why I was able to integrate myself into the criminal community. What sort of persona would you have had to have for them to think you were a threat? I, I very much steered away from drugs. You know, I, as, as much as I might have been interested in taking bigger weights of drugs, but, you know, I wasn't there pretending to be shot in uh, crack or heroin or coke. I, was, mm. I, I put myself above that, really. You know, I put myself, as I was a professional thief. I was a professional armed robber. Okay. Um, so um, I was somebody that at times it was useful for me. I, I could disappear off that plot I'm, and I may be working undercover elsewhere for a couple of weeks and they thought I'd gone away having a score, you know, um, doing a job. And I come back and be flush with cash and, you know, throw, throw it about a bit, a bit, you know, in what we call a bit of theatre. And they'd mm. wear it. You know, I was very, very subtle about the way I introduced my criminality. I was never, I was never a big mouth. I never blurted out. I did this out of the other. I was very, very subtle, as I'm sure you read in the book, about very subtle how my, how I, my strategies into getting into people and how I opened up who I was to them was very subtle. Is it hard to disassociate speaking to these criminals and remembering that these are actually bad geezers? Because I'm sure for the most part, as you do, you have banter with people, you can kind of get on with people. But in the back of your mind, you must always be thinking, this is a really dangerous guy. Is it quite hard to disassociate between, shit, I'm actually getting on with this guy. He's actually a really bad guy. Don't, don't let yourself get sucked in. I didn't find it hard, no. I, I, I certainly met criminals over the years when I was undercover that I liked. I met some that I liked. I met some that were you know, interesting, smart, funny and could have been anything they chose to be. 
Um, but um, and certainly some that had morals, you know, without doubt. Um, they weren't all inherently bad people. And I enjoyed the company of many of them, without doubt. But I always had my eye on the, on the goal that, you know, they certainly the ones in my side I was around, they had the potential to go and kill people. They had potential to source firearms and they had the potential to really hurt people. So that was at the fore, forefront of my mind when I was dealing with them. Who's some of the most notorious people that you've come across? Obviously, there's one in there that people will have heard of, Dale Cregan. And it's a, yeah. it's a re- really interesting sort of arc to the story with that because you sort of first met him as he was coming up and then you met him right towards the end when he committed the horrific acts that he did and got sent down. Is there anyone else apart from that who you thought, this guy's big time? Well, I mean, obviously I worked on the um, Paul Massey murder uh, as I detail in the book and I met, I met pretty much most of the serious sort of Salford lads and I don't even know anything about the Salford gangs and Salford organised crime groups but they're about as serious as it gets Stuart you know they're, they're very very clever they've got, they've got money they, they're very 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 different in, in many ways to the most side groups uh, they are probably the what I would term the epitome of organised criminals really very um, very smart about the way they go about the business very difficult to infiltrate um, you know they only often do business with people who come recommended or or they've been to school with in some cases you know they're very very tight-knit group uh, but they can operate on an international level you know um, and, and did and, and didn't do and were incredibly incredibly dangerous um, you know as we know Paul Massey got killed on his, on his own driveway you know that was a professionally premeditated hit yeah. uh, take some take some planning to and, and, and you know a, a degree of um do you have guts to carry out that kind of killing? And the Salford lads were very adept at it. So it, it seems like you were doing all this fantastic work. New, I think new management came in and it didn't really get you. And there was a lot of you know negative or bad blood, I suppose, between you and the higher-ups, despite everything you were doing. And it, that kind of led to you sort of slowly coming out of the, the GMP. And then you went into West Yorkshire Police uh, we briefly touched on that before recording, but if you could just, first of all, if we can go into how your actual time as, a, as an undercover came to an end, and then we can go on to sort of the mental health impacts of this, because I know you're an advocate for that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I, I mean, I, after Moss Side, I got pulled away from Moss Side because it was starting to get really, really difficult to operate there. You know, I come from Manchester, I started to have a number of compromises, sort of bumping into people who are new or knew me as a police officer, it was getting silly, really. And the tr- truth be told, looking back, I shouldn't have been there. You know, management shouldn't have allowed it to happen, but they did. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it was almost astounding. I got away with it for as, as long as I did, really. Uh, and then but I wanted to continue undercover. So I did some jobs for the Metropolitan Police, and I deployed in Holland, uh, and I worked for the Belgian Police Service as well for, for, for a time uh, doing a short operation there. Uh, and then uh, I ended up doing a long-term operation in Cambridge area, uh, where I lived on a pretty rough estate down there for about 15 months. Uh, and I put about 60-odd people in prison. They were all handlers and burglars of stolen goods and stuff like that. And I think I think I bought something in the region of about £300,000 worth of stolen property um, down there and portrayed myself as a lorry hijacker uh, who was now handling go- handling stolen goods. So, yeah, that, that was a really anxiety-inducing operation, really. I was down there alone and, you know, as a detail in the book, it sort of straight after Moss Side, it was, it was quite heavy going, really. New management came into the undercover unit and 
the way I was as an undercover, I was very close to the real thing. And that's not to say I was a bent police officer. I certainly wasn't. But I think if you, if, you know, if you met me and you saw me, the, the way I come across, I, th- I think I kind of filled them. They, they kind of thought I was that criminal. That I, I had to be criminal. If mm. that makes sense, you know, um, because of the persona I came across as, you know, rarely did anyone, ever, if ever, did anyone ever say to me, you could be a cop, you know, it just never, never entered anyone's head that I could have been a cop. I, in some in some some instances, they wanted me to be the head of the gang. It was ridiculous. Um, you know, I was more criminal than the criminals sometimes. But my persona, and we just didn't get on. The management, for whatever reason, didn't like me. And I, I came back from the job down south with a judge's commendation in hand, thinking that we could repair the damage that had gone on in our relationship, but clearly not. And they decided that I was done. Me being me, wanted to stay in the undercover world, tried to go to another force. And then they became quite vindictive with me. Um, stopping me transferring to another undercover unit and it all got a little bit vindictive which I detail in the book and they tried to put me in a broom cupboard copying discs having spent you know the largest part of my career running around the country portraying gangsters they thought that a good resettlement for me would be to put me in a broom cupboard copying discs so you know in terms of damaging people's mental health and reintegration back into normal policing that's just not the way to do it so I remember you said at one point that you received the judge's commendation, I think, and rather than present it to you, it would normally have been a, a very big ceremony. You would have been you know, extremely applauded by your colleagues and your peers. They sort of gave it to you in like a black bin bag or something or left it with the post. So, yeah, I got a judge's commendation, you know, which is, which is quite a high accolade for a cop, particularly one as an individual. Quite often they get given out to murder teams and stuff like that uh, for, for a team effort. But this to get one as an individual is quite an accolade. And um, normally, you know, the chief constable might invite you down for a cup of tea and a cucumber sandwich and shake your hand and give you the give you know have a picture with him while he gives you your uh, judge's commendation. But mine was uh, the management at Amiga decided that they put mine in a black bag and hand it to a security guard for me to collect. So yeah, that was the sort of level of vindictiveness I was dealing with. It's such a, a baffling thing for them to do considering everything you'd achieved and the amount of people that you'd put away whilst portraying this, this criminal who was so good that the cops even thought you were bent. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, again, I mean, I think to get, to get a proper grasp on it, people have to read the book and then you get, you'd understand where we're coming from with this sort of conversation here. You know, they even accused me of having Stockholm syndrome, um, which is where they basically, they, they thought in their opinion, I, I didn't know if I was a criminal or a cop. Mm. which was you know a ridiculous assertion what do you think needs to be done then because i know you're a you're a mental health advocate now there's been a lot of sort of negative struggles with regards to how you were treated within the unit what do you think the correct procedure should be for someone to reintegrate them back into normal society uh well into normal policing for, for, i think um i think it's got to be in a you've got to sit down and discuss it with them what what are their career aspirations? You know, uh, because essentially you 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 de-skill as an undercover cop, you de-skill from normal policing because normal policing is always moving all the time. New processes, new procedures come in, new laws, new legislation, new you know things like that come in. And as a, un, as an undercover cop, you 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 you're not part of that really. You're not party of it. So you you know you you often leave undercover policing and your training is five years. The last training you might have had might be five years before you know, in the normal police world. So I think, first of all, they've got to get you back up to speed with what, what's current in policing. 
Uh, and that just wasn't the case with me. That just never happened. And also, you know, you've given a lot of yourself. You've quite often sacrificed your home life and, and you know, you lived, lived away from home, away from your family, away from your friends. You've infiltrated criminal gangs and that, that leaves a mark on you, you know. Undercover work does leave a mark on you, you know. It's very, it's very easy to say, I could play Mikey the gangster one day, well, and then I can be Shay the detective constable the next. It just doesn't work like that, I'm afraid. The psyche of people doesn't work like that. And I think you need a time to decompress. You need time to um, understand that, you, you know, you, there's going to be a change in the way you operate, in the way you work. And that's also for your family as well, you know, because I don't think the police understand enough the impact on the family of officers that work undercover because it massively impacts on relationships and and. I think more should be done around that. I think uh, there should be an agreed career path when you leave undercover policing, something that you can kind of move into something that interests you, that, that, that you know, reignites the, the motivation you had on, undercover. But moving on, whether that's promotion or working in intelligence or for some it may be putting the uniform back on and going back out on the beat. I think it's very a very individual thing, but rather than dictating to someone what you will do, I think it should be a joint process. Yeah, it sort of seems, and I'm sure this isn't the case for all UCs, but it seems like rather than thinking a hero is back with us, it's an asset to the team. It almost feels like a hindrance, like, oh, what we're going to do with him? He's back now. Do you know what I mean? It kind of feels like a hindrance to them rather than an asset. Absolutely. I mean, what one one boss sort of said to me, um, why, why have I got you? They created the monster. Now I've got to deal with it. You wow. know, that, that that's the sort of thinking that, that you know, that can come with, you know, uh, they created the monster. Now I've got to deal with the problem, you know, and that's unfortunate. But again, it's a lack of knowledge and, and that should be all part of the process really. And again, you know, unfortunately there's failings in management, you know, just, just the way it goes, I'm afraid, unfortunately. Yeah. So your time with the police came to an end in 2020, I believe. Yeah, 2020. What was the process like leading you up to writing this book? Because you did mention at the start there that you wanted to sort of highlight to people what it's actually like and what is out there. And it's we're not all living in a in a fantasy world, I suppose. What other sort of motives did you have to write the book? Well, so I was in the service, I became really unwell. I became very, very unwell, which was a cumulative effect of all the operations I'd undertaken, just caught with me. Uh, and I'd not dealt with and managed and made time for my own mental wellness, I suppose. Over the years, I just threw myself into operation after operation after operation, always wanting to be at the sharp end in the, in the next big big operation, which I detail in the book. And it was like a dripping tap, really. And eventually, my my mental health failed quite spectacularly, really, and I became very very unwell. And ultimately, I was discharged from the, medically discharged from the police with diagnosed with complex PTSD as a result of the work I'd undertaken. So, one of my drivers for getting the book out there was, was this that. Lots and lots of cops and lots of what the frontline emergency services are asked to do things that most people wouldn't see in a lifetime. Yet I might see them three times a week, you know, and sometimes they don't get the support that they need. They don't get the support from management. They don't get the support generally, you know, and certainly the police, as we know, it's a divisive subject. Some people support the police. Some people don't. Some people think they're all bullies or whatever. Um, you know, I wanted to highlight that there is cops out there, good, honest, decent cops that go out, put the self on the line so that the public can be safe and we need to look after their mental health better. And the management and the police as a service need to start understanding mental health better. They need to start getting some knowledge 
and dealing with people like human beings, not just a, a person to be processed under a, you know, a, a, a particular process, which is what happened with me, unfortunately. Yeah, it really does to the general reader, which obviously I am. It, it feels like a, a mad um, fictional crime book. And you got yeah. to kind of pinch yourself and think this, this is real, man. Like this is why I'm, I'm just so buzzing that you actually spoke to me, Shea, because it's almost like you are just a, you're a real guy. You do exist and all this shit has happened to you. And it's Absolutely. like, it's so hard to fathom because you're reading it and you're thinking, wow, imagine if that was real. And you're like, oh shit, it was. Yeah, it was real life. It happened. And, uh, you know, I, I'm hoping one of the, one of the things I hope from the book is that it can impact change within the police service that they start to look after the people that do take risks and, and try and protect the public. You know, um, I'm hoping the police as a service really start to sort of change their attitudes and culture and behaviours towards men, officers that are heading for being mentally unwell or could get mentally unwell. How hard was it get to published? Was it quite divisive? Uh, do you know what? I'd love to tell you it was that hard, but um, I think, you know, having read the story, I, um, it, I think from idea to, to to deal, it was two weeks. So, really? So, wow. Yeah, I mean, but I, I think I think that probably demonstrates the strength of the story rather than my brilliant writing style. I think I think <laughs> you know, Penguin and Ibri, um they picked up very, very early. I mean, you know, I was involved in some very high-profile things and it was relevant, uh, that, you know, because a lot of stuff was going on around Great Manchester Police and there was some real relevant stuff in there. So I think that helped, you know. So I know people do struggle to get books published and I was very, very fortunate and very lucky that we got a really supportive editor at Ebria who saw the value in the story. Yeah. So I think, I think my, 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 my journey about getting published is the exception, not the rule. And you worked with, um, with Scott Hesketh to help write this yeah. book. How does that work with a writer? Do you sort of just sit down with them, tell them the story similar to what we're doing this, maybe record it, take notes and convert that into something. Does it feel far removed from your actual words or do you still feel that even though someone's helped you write it and articulate it? That well, it is I mean, you, you should have that conversation with Scott Hesketh really, because <laughs> me and him, are, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, we, we had our ups and downs over, over the process because it was very personal to me. You see, the yeah. book. Uh, Scott was a great help. He's a great lad. He, he, he was really behind the story and he, he put his heart and soul into it with me. And we had some really late nights. We went over things and over things until we got it absolutely word perfect between us. And um, he really, really dedicated him, himself to the book and to me. And, um, you know, if any people think, if anyone thinks there's money in books, there really isn't, you know, I think, I think his hourly rate would probably be about 50p. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, um, it was, a, it was a labor of love for us both. And um, yeah, we, we, you know, we would, record things and then he'd write and then I'd look at it and I'd rewrite and and it was a real back and forth between us. It was a real joint effort, but without him, I couldn't have done it, you know, for sure. And um, I'm sure Scott, I'd, have, I'd give you some funny stories of, of the, the process to write the book. And I used to spend him on with a headache sometimes, I'm sure. How long did it take from start to finish? I would say about nine months, nine months. That's not um, bad. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were periods that we worked on it more than we didn't and, some chapters took longer than others that we needed to rework and stuff. And uh, then obviously we had to deal with the police. You know, we had to send the manuscript to the police to ensure that the, there was no risk to anybody or, or yeah. you know, we, we changed a lot of names in there because uh, we had to do. And my, my intention wasn't to embarrass anybody 
or put anybody at risk or anything like that. It was to tell my story, really, not not anybody else's. And um, I hopefully have achieved that. Yeah, I mean, like I say, everyone that's listening, the day we've uh, released this is March 3rd. That's when it's out. It's Deep Cover, How I Took Down Britain's Most Dangerous Gangsters by Shea Doyle with Scott Hesketh. What I always do, Shea, just before we close out, is I ask my guests three questions, just sort of philosophical, if you like. Um, The first one, it might... I might take this question out to be fair in future because no one ever has an answer. But do you have a motto or something that you live by? Do you have like a mantra or anything? Uh, well, when I was working undercover, it was never back down, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, which, I, which I sort of go on about in the book quite a lot, to be honest. Um, never show fear, I suppose, when, when I was undercover. But now it's, uh, I won't say a mantra as such, but um, I, I saw something the other day which I thought was a great mantra. It was a, Make time for your wellness, or you will be forced to make time for your illness, which wow. um, really resonated with me because I never did that. And, and I think that's a really good rule for anybody in any walk, walk of life. That is a good one. We'll take, we'll take both of them. You can have two. That's fine. <laughs> it, is there something uh, that you know now that you wish you'd known when you started? Yeah. Family first, um, above anything else you do. I would be guilty of not doing that. And I wish I'd put my family first, for for sure. And if maybe in that same vein, then, if you could go back and change anything, what would you change and why? I wish I'd been shrewder at dealing with management over the years, to be truthful, instead of being the uh, bull in the china shop I can be uh, (laughs) at times. I wish I'd been a bit shrewder with management and maybe my career, you know, might have not been cut short and maybe I'd looked after myself a little bit better. Uh, My career might not have been cut short. But overall... I like to think that I went out to do good and hopefully along the way, I kept some people safe. Cool. So have you got anything else in the pipeline? Obviously, as I said, the book's out today. Anything else lined up for the future? Any other ventures you're going to go on? Well, I mean, uh, you know, there's talks about the book being made into a drama and, and stuff like that. So that's really exciting to hear. And, you know, I'd love to sort of be involved with that. Um, uh, there's a number of sort of different, you know, I'm thinking about writing a fiction book uh, mm-hmm. based on sort of my experiences and sort of realistic fiction book and sort of getting out there stories that I can't put out there in the domain, but written a roundabout way based around an undercover police officer from Manchester. So um, I'm sort of toying with that idea at the moment. And, uh, but yeah, um, lots of people are approaching me to do nice things, which is good, but no, nothing concrete at the moment. I'm going to say you could just tell true stories and pretend that they're fake. I think my, I think my passion moving forward is is obviously the mental health stuff, but also you know boxing was a big passion of mine growing mm. up, and is a, is still a big passion. And you know I come from an estate in Manchester where you know there's, there's young kids, not not just that estate, but across Manchester, across Huddersfield, you know, or across Leeds, wherever, young kids who you know going to get drawn into guns and gang crime and stuff like that. And I'd, lo- I'd love to be able to do something to divert those type of kids from that world. And boxing seems a really sort of interesting vehicle for me. I have a friend who's a pro, pro boxer and we both love to sort of get a gym going or something like that, where we could, you know, just, just steer kids away from that kind of stuff. Final question. Who would you have play you in a drama? Well, funnily enough, it, it, one of my, one of my pals uh, put up uh, Jack O'Connell. Oh yeah. You've seen the film start up. Where he plays I've, I've not seen that. No. Quite a good film, but uh, one of my friends uh, when he did start up has said uh, yeah, he's similar in temperament to you, which I don't know was a was a, a compliment <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's your man from Skins, isn't it? That 
Jack O'Connell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. he might have to bulk up, he might have to bulk up a bit, but he probably will. <laughs> He'll have to train him so he can do the role like a proper method actor. Live with you for six months. Yeah, but uh, apparently in this film, starred up. One of my friends said, "Yeah, he's a, he reminds me of you." <laughs> so, so maybe he could play me. Yeah, that'd be great. Cool. Right. Well, appreciate you coming on, Shea Doyle. As I said, the book is Deep Cover, How I Took Down Britain's Most Dangerous Gangsters. Please go out and buy it. It is a fantastic read. It's out today. And is there anything else you'd like to say before we close? No, thank you for your time, Stuart. I'm, uh, it's a real privilege to uh, speak to people and, and, and hopefully people go out and uh, enjoy the story and take something from it. So no, thank you for the thank you for the platform. Thank you for the time. You're more than welcome. So everyone, check that out and I will see you next week. <laughs>